This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm James Seal and I'm joined today by Katie Balls, the political editor of The Spectator, and Paul Goodman, editor of Conservative Home. Now, welcome to today's episode, which is going to be The Plot, Part 2, uh, which, of course, refers to the great Nadine Dorries book uh, about the alleged shenanigans involving the Conservative leadership. And this week has taken a rather interesting turn, Katie, with the developments about uh, Simon Clark's comments in The Telegraph uh, and the subsequent fallout over the past uh, two days. Tell us where we're at uh, this Thursday afternoon. So I think it's fair to say the Simon Clark intervention, at least judged in the immediate, was a flop. It served to instead unite the Tory party. And you can speak to MPs of all stripes, including some on the trust wing, and they just don't really get it. <laughs> They're more likely to say to you, what do you think he's thinking? It does not feel as though it is something where, uh, you know, there are many poised to go. Of course, if you look at the comments of people like Miriam Cates or the silence of someone like Danny Kruger, I think you can read between the lines and think when it comes to who might next say Rishi Sunak is rubbish, this group could be those. But I think that was probably quite obvious from third reading, as in the sense that if you want to know who probably is the most critical of Rishi Sunak or the most unhappy, look at the 11 Tories who voted against the bill at third reading and couldn't be talked down to even abstain. I think probably the interesting development overnight is that we've had a name put out, so that's Will Dry, he used to be doing the polling at number mm. 10, and he is now conducting polling for this rebel group. So this mysterious group of Tory donors who are funding all these polls, which you guys are doing, that keep appearing in the Telegraph. And uh, Will Dry is said to become disenchanted with Sunak's premiership. He's put out a statement after his name was put out there. And he said, you know, it became clear to me we weren't providing the bold, decisive action required to overcome the challenges. And went on to suggest that he concluded sorrowfully that the Conservatives are heading for the most almighty of defeats, being no doubt we are on course for at least a decade of Labour rule. Now, of course... He is a pollster, but I think most people could just look at the current polls and see it does not look good for the Tory party. Therefore, what is the significance of Will Dry being outed as moving from number 10 to this group? I think the jokes write themselves when it comes to number 10 pollster looks at polls, polls so bad he turns on his boss. Um, But also, for example, the Times is reporting there's an office in central London where he and others, lots of former government advisors are plotting effectively Rishi Sunak's demise. Now, not to get into names, but clearly, I think in all these conversations, it tends to come back to Suella Braverman, the former Home Secretary. I think that's been fairly well documented. You know, some of the people who worked for her are still around. And I think the question is, is this such a targeted group that we're now going to look at the the Simon Clark intervention, if you judge it for this week, has done the opposite of what you want it to do. But the plotters would argue this is just the beginning. They're going to keep ebbing away. You're going to have these damaging by-elections in February. You're going to have the Rwanda scheme and the various problems. And for example, you've had the ECHR today say that Rishi's plan breaks international law. And then you'll have these damaging May elections. And therefore, it might not look like they're winning right now, but give them time and then they'll move more over. And therefore, I think what we're learning this week is, is it a bit more organised? And is that something that Rishi Sunak needs to worry about? Or 
as ever, are they speaking more than they're actually able to deliver on? Well, yeah, Paul, that's the key question, I suppose, is it? Is this a, a plot of MPs in Parliament? Or is this more something what you've called the right-wing entertainment industry, and much more a media creation uh, and people who are basically aides and advisors around two or three key people rather than a kind of genuine grassroots uprising or peasants' revolt perhaps in Parliament? I think the MPs are one thing, and they are, as MPs tend to be, individualistic, not agreed, disorganised, divided about what to do. And so you have some who, you know, as Katie said, might have followed Simon Clark but didn't. I think Simon Clark's in a particularly difficult situation because of his seat. You know, his seat is um, basically the one in 217 was a red wall one and he looks like losing. And it's a different thing if you're an unhappy MP in a seat like that or if you're one who's in, you know, cushioned by a 25,000 majority. Mm. So I think they, this group of people who are unhappy with Rishi Sunak, they can't quite agree what to do. There is a very important element in them who think, we're going to lose, why should we take the blame? Let Rishi Sunak take the blame, which has undoubtedly explained why Moore didn't follow Simon Clark. I think that's one element of what's happening. I think the other is this group of plotters exemplified by will dry. And I take that a bit more seriously. And I think although they are getting a lot of coverage and sympathetic space in the in the Telegraph papers, which is a problem for Rishi Sunak because lots of Tory members read the Telegraph, there do appear to be a number of them. They appear to be more purposeful. They've access to polls. They've access to money. I think if I were Downing Street, I'd be taking them more seriously. And I suspect in the next few days, as we head towards Saturday and Sunday, there will be a whole hunt of the mole exercise going on with the Sunday papers, well, I'd be doing if I were them, hunting around to try and find out who members of this extended network are, who's working with Will Dry, who is funding them, where is this office, what's the role of Suella Braverman's former spans in all of this. So I would expect more of that to turn up in the Sunday papers. Finally, We'll have to see where it all goes, as Katie says, in terms of the by-elections in mid-February. That's the next sort of crisis point, and we will see. On the whole, I suspect Rishi Sunak will sort of make it through, but you never know. It's a bumpy road for the Conservative Party at the best of times. Paul there talks about Rishi Sunak making it through, Katie. This morning I spoke to one MP on the right of the party who was pretty furious with the last few days, and... They were saying to me, why don't they just, CCHQ ought to sort of withdraw funding, take the whip off these people. Is there a case perhaps for Rishi Sunak perhaps to come down harsher on these plotters, some of whom know they're not going to be there in six months' time? What do you think number 10's strategy is in all of this? I think the problem is it's very easy to say, well, why don't you just withdraw the whip? Mm. Why don't you just show that iron fist and actually have more discipline? The whip's office is too easy, it's too soft and so forth. Obviously, if you were the one having to deal with the fallout of going too hard, or going hard and then having all these enemies perhaps become more extreme than they were going to do otherwise. That That's one of the things you're grappling with. I also think when you say, oh, well, why don't you withdraw the whip from Simon Clark and others? I said that to one figure in government. And they're first saying, isn't that what they want? You know, like, is it, is right. it the case that they, you know, potentially, would that give them the calls that they want? Uh, it might not, but they said, you know, there is something for that if you give them the attention of this. And I think the potentially the other thing is if you suddenly said, you know what, all those 11 MPs who voted against this bill, 
at third reading, we are drawing the whip. Well, wouldn't they just affect the reform? And then reform all of a sudden has 11 MPs in Parliament. Nigel Farage comes back. They do a big PR stunt on College Green, you know, with the this Parliament behind them and say, look at our new block talking the truth to power. And then you've got 11 MPs very angry doing endless speeches on reform and what they do on the boats. I just think it's one of those things that where I'm, I don't have a solution myself, but I think it's much easier to often say there are easy solutions to these things and actually trying to keep the party together and, and not to push people away to take more extreme positions is what I think they'll be trying to do. Now, of course, there are limits. You've had the chief whip this week bringing in the 11 rebels. Yeah. Didn't they've got to the full 11 yet, taking their time you know, <laughs> before these one-on-one chats. But as I understand, the argument the chief whip is making is not you've got to do this for Rishi Sunak. It's saying we are having MPs coming to us and they are saying the division is what is just hurting them in their seats. And they're able to quote some of these MPs and say, you know, they're coming to them saying, when they go back to their constituency, is the infighting. And they're putting that to MPs as a plea of, will you think about that? And I think it's getting a mixed reception, or at least lots of people saying, yes, we agree. And then perhaps then adding, (laughs) and then acting in ways afterwards that might suggest that they they agree in theory, but they're not going to change their behavior. But I I think that gives you an insight into how they're approaching the rebellions for now, at least. So I think there will be, there's always a limit, but I think there is a reluctance to take such firm action because also then you get to the question of what is Rishi Sunak's mandate and he was never voted by the membership. So he is in a bit of a trickier territory there in terms of not having a mandate from the electorate or the Tory membership. I mean, Paul, Katie there mentions reform. Do you think the next big crunch point for Rishi Sunak, given that I think we both can agree that the Simon Clark intervention has been somewhat of a flop for now, the next big crunch point is going to be those by-elections results middle of February in Wellingborough and Kingswood. If reform, for instance, did well in Wellingborough, where they put a lot of resources, you know, Ben Habib, the deputy leader standing there, and got, say, more than 10% having historically underperformed, do you think that could be the next big crunch point for Rishi Sunak? Probably. We don't know what will happen before then. We don't know the results of journalistic exploration into this <laughs> organised plot, uh, you know, what may come out of the woodwork. So you've got to kind of look for that. You never know, we're always blown off course by things, you know, someone may suddenly resign, it's a mad, mad world out there. But the by-elections look like being the next the next test. And we're either plotters, I'm sure I would be trying to organise something at or around the time of the by-election results. I don't know what it would, would um, be, they've had a really good go with polling, even if the last exercise in polling they did was less than persuasive by putting up uh, imaginary Conservative leader who doesn't exist mm. against Keir Starmer rather than Rishi Sunak against Keir Starmer. I'd be interested by one point, which is I wonder if they also polled other potential named Tory leaders against Keir Starmer and actually found they didn't perform particularly well and consequently didn't release the results. I'm only speculating here, but it just seemed the obvious thing to do would be to name one or two. Of course, if you do that, you're then drawing the people you name into the plot, even if only by implication. Yes, and it's worth saying that the uh, Council of British Polling this afternoon is looking at that YouGov polling and what went on with the Conservative Alliance for Britain, so we'll wait to see about that. And Paul, I just want to ask as well, uh, Con Home has done some interesting pieces looking at how the ECHR debate is shaping out across Europe, what different centre-right or even centre-left governments are doing in response to the migration crisis. I just wonder, with the comments today of the ECHR president on the follies of trying to overrule the uh, 
Rule 39 injunctions. I just wonder how you think that's going to shape the debate when it comes to the Rwanda scheme and the government trying to overrule the Strasbourg court in the coming months. Rishi Sunak's got himself into a particularly awkward position because on the one hand, you have the 11 who voted against the third reading of the Rwanda bill. You have the 60 rebels who voted for amendments. You have the people who don't think the bill is hard enough. On the other hand, you have... Uh, Alex Chalk, the Justice Secretary, and Victoria Prentice, the Attorney General, who really signed up to this whole world of the ECHR. Rishi Sunak himself is somewhere in the middle in that he pretty much came out straight away after the Supreme Court judgment on the Rwanda case that um, uh, it had got legal problems. And Rishi Sunak said, I would be prepared to defy an interim order of the court, which is not the position, as I understand it, of his Attorney General and his Justice Secretary. So he's in a really difficult position here. And I suppose he's got very little alternative but to carry on as he started. Mm. And um, if the bill, you know, goes through the House of Lords, becomes law, if it isn't in real difficulty with the domestic courts, but, you know, if the EU slaps down, sorry, the court slaps down a... um, kind of interim ruling of what's he going to do then? I think it's a very, very, very interesting situation in that I'm sure were he to defy a Section 39 order, um, most of the Conservative Party would, would back him up. But what do his law officers do? And what does the school in government do in the civil service, uh, in, in border force, wherever, who think that you just cannot break international law and that this is breaking international law? Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for listening to Coffee House Shots.